But how much of um, the anxiety that you're dealing with, how much of that is fueled by the situation, like the actual situation versus what you might be fueled uh, with on social media? I think it's actually a huge amount of it. And there was a study done looking at the impact social media had on those in China during the height of their pandemic. And it looked at the emotional and psychological impact, you know, the noise that it had in causing things like distress and depression. And I don't think it should come as a surprise to anybody, but the more time people stayed on social media, the worse their mental health was overall. So on one side of this thing, you know, we deal with the health threat. On the other side of this thing, there's the economic threat. And then we are being pounded in every direction by opinions, theories, accusations, and a whole lot of doomsday news all while being told, stay inside and stay away from any actual real connection to the real world. Yeah, it's a hard existence. Dr. Roger McIntyre is a professor of psychiatry as well as pharmacology at the University of Toronto. He breaks this down for us. Good to have you, doctor. Thanks for having me, and thank you for covering this very important topic. Well, you know, when we went through the Great Depression um, or even the war, you know, which is, I think, what people compare this to, there was no such thing as social media. And so, you know, it was a different world. And yet here we are and it's uh, bombarding us. And and I mean, I think it's heightened anxiety and, and uh, irritation and made this thing a whole lot worse than, than it might be without it. You're absolutely right. And the way you prefaced our discussion, I thought, beautifully captured the dynamics that we're looking at. Uh, Never have we seen anything like this, an assault on mental health, whether it's the fear of virus, the fear of employment being lost, the fear of paying your bills, all in the context of being told to stay at home. I can't imagine anything more stressful. Now, the instinct that we all have as human beings is woven into our DNA is that at times of fear, we often seek out comfort by those who are familiar and those who are safe to us. Now, you're right. Years and years ago, we did not have social media, but we had other ways we got together interpersonally. Social media itself is, uh, in my view, neither good nor bad. Social media is a medium. It's a platform. And for many people, it is the only platform wherein they can engage people. They can reach out have contact, which is a normal human want, a normal human need. The difficulty is, or where the challenges begin, is that unlike more conventional social interaction, for example, at a party or a community center, a religious center, or or what have you, there are very few parameters with respect Mm -hmm. to social norms when it comes to social media. For example, if you and I were at a dinner party together, it'd be unlikely that our first interaction, I would start calling you names. <laughs> it's now, true. It's if, true. If, I did, if I did, you'd be scratching your head and wondering about my social uh, literacy. But on social media, there are no parameters. The other aspect about social media is that it's often anonymous. And the anonymity, as well as some of the vitriol and the lack of parameters, create a fertile ground for what is what we don't need. And that is unsafe, anxiety-provoking, and often very negative interactions. So I think, in fact, the way to conceptualize it is see it as a device, as a platform. It could be our friend. It could be our enemy. Now, what we found in our study in China, amongst not just the general population, but healthcare providers, is that individuals who spent a significant amount of time on social media during this crisis reported the highest levels of anxiety, depression, and Mm -hmm. stress. 
And this is in keeping with a body of literature that predated COVID for the last 10 years. There's been a very robust scientific literature indicating that uh, the more time you spend on social media, the more likely you're to rate your quality of life as negative. Now, not to get too lost into the science of this, one of the questions always comes up, well, what came first? Is it the case that someone who's already depressed and anxious and very stressed spends more time on social media as a consequence? There's ways around that question, and there seems to be a directionality where social media can be quite toxic if if it's consumed at too much excess. Right. And I mean, there's there's no real balance. And I can only speak to my own situation because I don't know what other people do. And I, I don't I, you know, I can only speak to, to to what I live. I mean, my husband's not nearly on it uh, as much dealing with it as, as I am. I mean, it's part of my job. You know, if you're in my business, you're kind of in this 24 seven, you're watching it, you're looking at it, you get anxious. For sure, there's anxiety um, and it has its effects. And that's why I try to divorce myself from as much of it as I can, certainly on the weekends, because it just gets to be too much. But I would think that if you're really vulnerable or if um, you're feeling very fragile, like if you've just lost your job, it, it can be a real crutch for you, but it can also be your undoing. You've summarized it very well, and, and you're right. I think that, think about, you know, we as human beings have a certain kind of resiliency about us. And in other words, there's only, there's only so many punches we can take, so to speak, metaphorically. Mm. And the fear Fear reduces your resiliency. In fact, fear for a long time literally reduces your ability to rebound at the biological level. You're more prone to infection. You're more prone to not just, uh, obviously, infections all the news now, but infections in general when you're chronically stressed. But it's more than that because it, when you have chronic stress, especially chronic unpredictable stress, and that's the, that's the essence of the situation we're in, because we're not being told what an exit strategy is. This has been been approached entirely from a biomedical perspective, and indeed that's a priority. But an equal priority is the economy and getting people back into normal social interactions because their mental health is as important as their physical health. And that's something we need to be speaking more about for the general population. And the more, in fact, people live in their homes, fear of virus, fear, how am I going to pay the bills? Is my job going to exist when this thing's done? This is reducing their resiliency. And then when they get onto some of these platforms and are exposed to less than positive interactions, that has its own um, sort of, if you will, infection on them. It sort of has more traction on them because, in fact, they're more vulnerable in that situation. Right. I mean, I I suspect many of us, most of us will survive the pandemic. Um, You know, it's hitting, obviously, a lot of older people. Uh, But after the the health aspect of this is is brought into control, the the economy is going to take years, if not decades, to fix. And people are going to be hurting really badly. And there's a, you know, I had a a discussion earlier talking about the economic death, uh, you know, that a lot of people will will actually suffer because losing everything takes such an enormous toll uh, on a family, on an individual. And then we already have real shortcomings when it comes to mental health services in this country. We talk about it more than we actually walk it. Uh, And there have been some investments Investments on it, but what are you looking at as far as data of how we're supposed to deal with it after the fact to actually make sure people are okay? Well, the emphasis on data, I think, is one we need to make very, very front and center. This should be evidence-based in our actions, in our strategy, and how we 
in fact, try to put in place policy. Well, let's use history as lesson. We know not only from the Great Recession just over a decade ago, but the Asian Recession in the 90s, all the way back to the Great Depression, that whenever unemployment goes up, especially when it goes up abruptly, that's mm-hmm. accompanied by an increase in suicide, as well as mental illnesses associated with suicide, like alcoholism and depression. And this isn't some theory. This isn't some concept. Unfortunately, this is fact. Now, if the projections are accurate that we're hearing from the Canadian government and the rates in the U.S. are just incredible and just so difficult to your head around in terms of the projected unemployment is, we can expect very dire situation for our, our population. Yeah. So in addition to, I mean, most of us didn't use the phrase flattening the curve. That's not how most of us spoke four weeks ago, five weeks ago. We all know what flattening the curve means. Let's add to that flattening the curve and preventing the curve, the curve of mental illness and suicide. Now, what I find especially, I've been in this business for over 20 years, and I've had the privilege of meeting patients and families for over 20 years who walk into my office and say how frustrated they are with the Canadian mental health care system, often waiting six months, a year, a year and a half, even to have access to an assessment, which, of course, is appalling. Now we have the good news is the threat brings opportunity. The opportunity I've seen right across the country, I've seen a variety of psychological services being available to people, sort of so-called psychological first aid, being made available as it should. And we've all gotten behind this, not just our healthcare providers, but people who are in need of those services can now access them within one day. What we need is legacy, a positive legacy of this. Why can't that just continue? Why is it that a child who's 10 years old wants to kill themselves why do they have to wait 10 months to see a mental health care provider? Why can't that right. continue? It, it doesn't continue because of politics and priority. And so the politics and the priority of mental health, I hope, is the legacy of this going forward. And there's a variety of provisions the government's doing. But in addition to the provisions the government's doing, we need to have a candid conversation about preserving the economy and getting an exit strategy in place, because this is not just a biomedical threat. This is a mental health threat, and that has to be dealt with contemporaneously. Right. We also need to step away from social media and and get back to being uh, face-to-face, well, social distanced face-to-face and, uh, you know, get more of a connection human-wise to that. Uh, Doctor, I wish I had more time. Fascinating discussion. I hope you will come back on with me again. Obviously, this is not going away anytime soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you.